Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President, Founder, and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Uh, I'm honored and delighted to have each of you making time to attend the session with us today on the new rules for the STEM OPT extensions. Along with me, I have two of my brilliant colleagues and lawyers from the Murthy Law Firm, Attorney Anna Stepanova, who is our own in-house person who has focused several, several years of her life in her former life before joining the Murthy Law Firm. In fact, she was a designated school official or international student advisor with a Midwestern university and has done some really cool things and so enjoys focusing in the area of F1 student-related issues. Along with Anna and myself, we have Chris Drynan, who is a senior attorney and who has both deep knowledge and wide knowledge on a wide variety of topics, both non-immigrant and immigrant. We, in fact, joke and call him Mr. Chrisopedia, uh, like the encyclopedia or Wikipedia here, because he's considered so knowledgeable and a true, um, but, but very... Um, but he's very, very humble and modest about his uh, wide variety of information and knowledge, and all of us deeply respect and admire him. So you can see we are surrounded by some of the brightest, smartest, most amazing lawyers who are here to share their information and knowledge with you. Today's topic, as I said earlier, is about the new rules for STEM OPT extensions. As many of you already know, effective from May 10th of 2016, the new 24-month STEM OPT extension rule went into effect, and this rule replaced the prior 17-month STEM OPT extension, but it obviously, in addition, created this whole additional set of obligations for all of you as employers that wish to hire a STEM OPT student, OPT extension student, including a requirement to implement a formal training program for your STEM uh, uh, OPT extension students on F1 status, as well as additional new reporting requirements. So with that said, let's go have a brief overview. And Chris, if I can start with you, let's start off with what was already known to all of us. What's the true and tried? What has not changed? What has stayed the same in the old rule and the new rule? Well, Sheila, a lot of this did stay the same. Uh, some of this is going to be very familiar to anyone who's familiar with the, the STEM OPT rules. Um, your STEM OPT employer must be registered in the U.S. government's E-Verify system, mm -hmm. uh, which confirms your employment authorization, your authorization to work in the United States. Um, this STEM OPT employment must be recommended by the school's DSO, the designated school official. Mm -hmm. um, the major field of study, in other words, the, the field you received your degree in, has to be on the list of designated STEM degrees, which are uh, science, technology, engineering, math degrees. Mm -hmm. Not everything's going to qualify. Um, the job duties that you'll be performing in your STEM employment 
have to be related to the degree. Because um, this is, the, at, at its base, this is intended as an extension of your employment. So it has to be, your duties have to be in the same field to qualify. Um, now there's also, also unchanged, there's an 180-day automatic extension of your F-1 status and your employment authorization while the STEM request is filed and pending with USCIS. And also um, the H-1B cap gap rule still apply. So actually that's pretty good news. So as long, so even if they take their own sweet time to process it, I guess the 180-day automatic extension of both the F-1 status and the employment authorization is helpful because even if at the end of it they determine that it's there's a problem, mm -hmm. you still got it for that time then, I Correct. guess. So that's the silver lining in the black law. But obviously, if you work with the Murthy Law Firm, with Anna and her team, to who has worked on this and crafted the systems and the processes from scratch here for us and for many of our Murthy Law Firm clients like yourselves on the phone, um, hopefully uh, approval is a foregone conclusion. But with that said, um, thank you, Chris. With that said, can I go to Anna to, to tell us exactly what is it that th that is new and that is expected under this new 24-month F1 OPT STEM extension? Absolutely. So Chris just said that a lot stayed the same, which is true, but uh, a lot more is actually new. So what's new? Obviously, it's called the 24-month extension rule. So instead of 17 months previously, uh, for, for which your STEM uh, OPT employment could could be previously approved, now it's 24 months. So that's good news for the employers and for their employees on STEM extensions. Mm -hmm. What else is new? The STEM OPT employer must design and implement a formal training program, and there is a spe special form for this program. Uh, this is called Form I-983, which is going to be signed by both the employer and your student employee, and which we will describe a little in, in a little more detail later. Uh, what's also interesting is that uh, now you are not limited to just one STEM extension. You can have two lifetime STEM extensions. So potentially you uh, can have a lot of time on OPT, working on OPT. And um, STEM, the, uh, can also be based on the previous degree. What Chris just said is that your job duties and the position must directly relate to the degree that is the basis for the STEM extension, which is absolutely true. However, for if you have a previous STEM degree and now you're working on uh, initial OPT that is not a STEM degree, you can potentially, with some limited exceptions, to actually base your extension on a previous degree. But that's assuming then that you did not get the F1 OPT and the STEM to, uh, 17 months or 24 months with the Correct. prior degree. Correct. There okay. are some limitations, so you need to be careful. You you don't, um, you or you shouldn't assume that you can get any of your previously obtained agree degrees and uh, base your STEM extension on it. So this is actually a topic in itself, and we can go on and on about all of the limitations, but that's a, a very interesting new uh, uh, nuance that USAS came up with, which gives people potentially more flexibility. But on the other side, 
uh, types of el eligible employment are more restrictive, and we're going to discuss that a little bit later in more detail as well. There is also a wage requirement. So the employer, uh, much uh, like they do with regard to H-1B workers, they must agree to provide compensation commensurate with similarly employed individuals. What exactly it means? This is a little bit to be seen also because we don't know exactly what it means. All we know it's similar to H-1B, but it's not the same. And also what has already been mentioned uh, is that the employer has uh, reporting requirements that they didn't have before. And also same goes to the employee that they are they have more reporting requirements. They used to have some, but now USCIS expanded the list of reporting requirements. And uh, you as employers need to keep track of them. So this is also something that's new and which requires more attention and, and more kind of hands-on involvement from the employers. Thank you, Anna. And some other new things in the, uh, in the new STEM rules. Um, as has been the case, the student uh, must submit the STEM OPT extension request on the Form I-765, which is the employment authorization form that goes to USCIS. Uh, that has to be submitted while the first year OPT is still valid and within 60 days of the DSO's recommendation, uh, which is more time than you've, you've previously had to submit it after the DSO's recommendation, which was actually a frequent, a frequent problem on these. Um, you also get an additional 60 days of unemployment permitted during the STEM extension. As you know, during your OPT, there are limits on how much time you can be unemployed for. Um, this new rule gives you basically an additional 30 days of unemployment that you're allowed. Um, travel uh, with a pending, uh, you can travel with a pending STEM OPT during the cap gap after the expiration of the first year OPT EAD. Um, there's an expanded list of STEM degrees. Um, it's now clear that one can apply from a STEM extension from H-1B cap gap. Uh, another change here, an employer must report a termination or resignation within five days of that occurring as opposed to what was previously two days. So a little more time for the employer. So as you can see, both the employer and the employee clearly have additional obligations, which we briefly touched upon, which both Anna and Chris have touched upon. So now we'll try to analyze many of these uh, terms and uh, topics that we touched upon. So the first stop, the first issue that we're going to delve deeper into for completing the Form 983 is in what types of employment really can the student engage in during the STEM OPT employment period because there are some restrictions. Clearly, as we discussed earlier, the intent of the new rule is to enhance the educational benefit and increase the program oversight, including safeguards which have been established to protect U.S. workers. That was the whole reason for doing this for coming up with these sort of restricted, going through making employers and employees jump through these additional hoops. So there needs to obviously be an employer-employee relationship similar to what is often asked in H-1B RFEs that unfortunately many of us have seen asking for the employer-employee relationship and the right of control. Similarly, they're asking some of those kinds of questions or situations 
with the current STEM OPT extension rules. So the, the regs seem to require now that volunteering under STEM OPT extension is no longer permitted. Previously, there was no problem with it because DHS has expressed that they are concerned that allowing a student to volunteer would increase the potential for abuse on the part of international students who may accept volunteer positions for no reason other than a desire to extend their time in the United States. And also there might be a concern that the employers might hire them as volunteers or unpaid interns and basically affect, I guess, adversely affect the U.S. labor market, which has clearly been one of the concerns with uh, the Department of Homeland Security and clearly it is a concern with the U.S. Department of Labor uh, in general. And then the second uh, issue that they've talked about besides volunteerism, uh, being a volunteer not being permitted, is self-employment, which was routinely done before with people starting their own companies, is now apparently no longer permitted under the new rules. What about consulting companies and those kinds of different arrangements, Anna? Well, that's a really good question. We have a lot of clients who are in this situation. So after the new rule went into effect, there was a little bit of a panic because uh, some people thought that it uh, was an end to um, effectively an, uh, put an end to STEM OPT for consulting companies uh, because of some language that USCIS used in their preamble, which is basically... Um, an explanation of what the rule says. So what they said in their preamble that consulting companies, employment through temp agencies, sole proprietorships, employment through consulting firms that provide labor for hire, etc., will be scrutinized for evidence of a bona fide employee, employee relationship. And they also said something that those uh, arrangements that do not constitute uh, employer employ, uh, type of arrangements or type of employment uh, that where you can find typical employee-employee relationship. So a lot of people had questions about what it means exactly because the rule itself doesn't say anything about consulting companies or third-party placements. Right, and it certainly didn't help because a lot of designated school officials who are not knowledgeable were telling their students, exactly. sorry if you're... Uh, um, you know, working with an IT consulting company, you're not allowed to do that, which we challenge, and we were successful, and I think now Absolutely. hopefully many of you Absolutely. are doing the we same cons thing. We consulted, exactly, Sheila. We consulted with a lot of people who came to us after they, their requests for STEM recommendation were denied by DSOs, designated school officials, and we had to do a lot of work with those and reach out with those companies and schools. And we also participated in the SAVP Student and Exchange Visitor Program uh, webinar where uh, people asked this question and, and SAVP actually provided uh, a little more clarity and more explanation as to uh, specifically third-party placements. So what SAVP said was that they are not automatically prohibited. And as long as the employer can show control over where, when, and how the STEM trainee is working and whether they are meeting the specific training goals stated on the form I-983 that both the employee and, the, uh, and employer have signed, then this particular arrangement is possible. A lot of our clients also asked whether the 
manager or the company representative who is making sure that the person, the trainee, is meeting the specific training goals as um, stated on the form I-983 needs to be working physically where the employee is working. Our position is it's not necessary, but of course the best scenario is direct employment that clearly shows the employee's oversight and control over the student employee where the student employee is working on site or basically at the employer's headquarters. So that stays to be the best case scenario, but it's our position that if you are very careful, if you make sure that you meet all of the control and oversight requirements, your employee can in fact be placed at a third party location. Interesting. But what is the safest or best scenario? So yes, we have a lot of obviously IT consulting companies, IT store members, other people, other companies, but there are a lot of other companies also. What is the safest and best case scenario? So this is possible, but you need to go through these hoops, establish the employer-employee relationship a little, like you said, like the H-1B. That could work. And what's the best case? The, the best case is when the employee is actually working together at the employer location together with their manager or their mentor. Okay. And if that is not there, then this other situation is okay, but we need to jump through and satisfy the U.S. Exactly. Uh, CIS the, and, uh, and ICE, presumably, right? Because SEVP and ICE student issues yeah. are primarily yeah, ICE. Yeah, because as an employee in this situation, you have to understand that your employment uh, arrangement can be scrutinized by U.S. CIS and ICE also, who can come for a site visit and we can talk about it a little bit later if we have time, but this is something that you need to be extra careful about and you need to actually understand what the requirements are and see how you can meet it with what kind of documentation and what kind of tools and, and methods that you can uh, employ to provide that oversight uh, over your employee. Okay, wonderful. Thank you very much for that information, Anna. So now let's go to the next issue which is how can we determine the wages that need to be paid? Because that's obviously a big issue for you all as employers, because before there was absolutely no guidance before this rule came into effect on May 10th of 2016. Before that, it was, you know, whatever it could be, just anything about minimum wage was basically legally permitted. And a lot of people were doing, as we talked about, you know, self-employment or volunteering work, et cetera. So there might not have been any salary or income or minimum wage was the sort of threshold requirement. Now, as we talked about earlier, the regulations clearly require commensurate compensation, which clearly has been defined, which must be paid by the STEM OPT employer to the STEM OPT student trainee. But the commensurate compensation clearly cannot be include no compensation whatsoever. That everybody agrees. And in fact, the, the, the regulations actually specify that with respect to startups and or small companies, alternative compensation may be allowed during a STEM OPT extension time frame as long as the F1 student can show that she or he is a bona fide employee and that the compensation, including any ownership interest in the employer entity, such as stock options, et cetera, is in fact commensurate with the compensation which is provided to other similarly situated U.S. workers. 
starting to sound a lot like the H-1B, Department of Labor, the prevailing wage. It is sounding a lot like the green card perm uh, wage that is required under the Department of Labor. And you can see that there was a lot of um, pressure from those other agencies to get involved. So, Chris, Mm -hmm. what is the meaning of commensurate. What does it mean here? It does sound, you're absolutely right, Sheila, it does sound very similar to the H-1B requirements or to the, the PERM requirements, but not exactly the same. Because um, the rule does not require that the employer pay the higher of the prevailing or the actual wage. Um, so in this case, if the employer has three or more workers in a, a similar training position, um, what you pay to these workers becomes the actual wage. And so other fresh graduates with no experience, if you just finished your bachelor's or your master's with no experience? Ex- well, okay. it's similarly mm-hmm. situated. Um, mm-hmm. Essentially, these would be training positions like you're, you'd be hiring, hiring someone in an OPT position. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have three or, three or more workers in a similar sort of training position, that becomes the actual wage. And that can be used as the basis for the wage you're offering uh pursuant to the STEM OPT request. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's possible in some circumstances uh, that the actual wage will be lower than the prevailing wage that you'd be required to pay if this was an H-1B. Um, however, the employer has to be ready to document the wage calculation um, with actual documentation as to how they, how they decided this. And they have to be able to justify it, um, justify the wage, essentially. Now, in a lot of cases, uh, the employer may simply decide to go with the prevailing wage or a higher actual wage to be on the safe side, mm-hmm. uh, essentially to be cautious to avoid problems later on. And that's what a lot of employers seem to be doing in this situation. Practically mm-hmm. speaking, Chris, that's exactly the mm-hmm. case. And in all of the cases that we assisted our company clients with, most of our clients preferred uh, to go with the prevailing wage. Uh, determination because that provides the safest mm-hmm. possibly a uh, possible uh, decision making for the wages to be paid. Exactly. Wow! So then, so so finally, when they do process the H one B, then down the road, Anna, it sounds like if they're already paying the prevailing wage, then there's less of a huge wage jump that they would because if they were paying, let's say, just a little above minimum wage, um, let's say they were paying only ten dollars an hour before. Uh, then when they would have to bum them up with the H-1 wage, suddenly it would jump from maybe $10 an hour or 20000 per year to now suddenly 50 or 60 or 40 or whatever the prevailing wage came back. Now, if they're paying the prevailing wage, there's that much less of a jump to be made in the future. And presumably that would be because it's the high, because the prevailing wage is generally fairly high, even if it's level one. Um, it just sort of gives a little extra protection for everybody. Exactly right, Sheila, because if you have a huge gap, then you invite all kinds of problems. And Mm -hmm. there may even be an an investigation into your uh, employment practices. Hmm. Scary stuff. So the next issue, which I know that many of you are either considering or will start having to process 983s, as you know that the employers... You as employers are required to develop a specific training plan, which you can base either on an existing training program within your company or organization that you may already have in place, or you can set up a start a new one. Obviously, it's highly recommended that the STEM uh, employer establish a company-wide training program or policy that will provide the framework for the I-Form 9 I-983, 
and also ser serve as a helpful tool in case of either an RFE from the USCIS or a site visit from ICE that we talked about earlier, Anna. That is correct, and that, that is exactly what we have in place in terms of helping our company clients to reach their goals of a successful 983 program development. And we start usually with a company-wide training policy, and um, that pro provides uh, the necessary framework for the uh, each individual 983. But before you can actually get to the 983, what you need to do? Well, first of all, you need to determine that your trainee worker is eligible, and the eligibility will be based on a specific school and degree and the job duties uh, that this employee is going to be performing. Then you need to see who will be providing oversight and training. In most cases, uh, you should designate at least one person to be in charge of the program. Some larger companies, in our experience uh, from working with company clients, some larger companies have two people. One may be an HR person who is in charge of overseeing the entire training program if they have more than one STEM worker on staff. And that person just keeps track of all of the requirements and all of the reporting requirements and all of the training requirements, not necessarily going deep into the specific goals of each trainee. And then they have a mentor assigned to each em employee who actually makes sure that that employee is reaching the goals set in place in the specific 983 training plan. So it's up to you as an employer if you want to have one person in charge of the entire program and keep track of all of the important dates and things like that, or if you want to have uh, two people, one working specifically on the uh, substantive issues with each trainee and the other one doing uh, overseeing the entire training policy. Then you also need to develop your wage determination system that we discussed a little bit just a couple of minutes, mi uh, minutes ago. And once this information is in place, including your trainee's eligibility based on the school um, degree, job duties, who will provide oversight, how you will determine uh, the wage to be paid, then you're ready to complete the 983 form and you will need to sign it together with your trainee worker. The uh, uh, new form requires that uh, the employer and the employee make specific attestations. And the form itself will contain the description of the training with specific goals and bench benchmarks, as well as the manner of supervision and mentorship. Uh, by the way, th some people ask, well, is it necessary to add some information on extra pages to the form? In our opinion, it's not. If you have all of the uh, training requirements in place in terms of your corporate uh, company-wide policy, just providing a brief description for each employee on each individual 983 in the spaces provided on the form should be sufficient. Well, as I already mentioned, the Form 983 uh, contains specific compliance attestations, which must be signed and submitted to the DSO prior to the DSO 
being able to recommend the 24-month extension in CVIS. Once the DSO does that, they will issue a new Form I-20 that the student, your trainee worker, will need to apply for OPT to USCIS using um, a different form, Form I-765. Thank you, Anna. Okay, so you mentioned just now that there are additional attestations that the employer and the employee must complete on this form I-983, which, as you all know, is the training plan for STEM OPT students. So, Chris, can you just Mm -hmm. go over? Because I think lots of times when employers are very busy, they just do check, 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 check. Even with the H-1B program, the LCA, the prevailing wage, everybody, nobody reads that fine print because, first of all, as we grow older, we need those magnifying glasses just to read. And second of all, it looks like fine print that you just, it's like when you buy software on the Internet, you just click it. But it's very important for employers and employees to understand and appreciate the attestations. What are these attestations that they're making? Well, there has to be, first off, an attestation that the employer has sufficient resources and trained personnel available uh, to provide appropriate training uh, in connection with the specified STEM OPT opportunity. In other words, there have to be sufficient people, resources to to supervise and train the the student here. the student on a STEM OPT extension cannot replace a full or part-time or temporary or permanent U.S. worker. Um, this cannot replace, in other words, a U.S. worker who's already in the position. Um, the opportunity, there's another attestation that the opportunity has to help the student attain his or her training objectives. In other words, that this, uh, this opportunity is actually advancing the education. Uh, and also the DSO at the school has to keep the I-983 available for three years and make it available to USCIS or ICE upon request by those federal government agencies. Hmm. Okay, so after all of this is done, remember the trainee now then goes and provides this employer-assigned, employer and employee-assigned Form I-983 to the university-designated school official or international student advisor and obtains the new I-20 with the recommendation for this STEM OPT extension for 24 months. And along with that new I-20, the student then files the form I-765, which, by the way, has a tight time frame, but not as tight as before. The, The 765 for the employment authorization must be filed within 90 days prior to the extension or the expiration, sorry, prior to the expiration of the 12 months of F1 optional, the FF1 OPT, the optional practical training, and within 60 days of the recommendation for the I-20 by the DSO. Previously, as you remember, some of you may remember, it was within 30 days and there were lots and lots of problems, situations where the international student advisor would miss it or drop it or the employee would drop it, the student. So they're giving an extra 30 extra days here, an additional 30 days for a total of 60 days. But it's not a lot of time um, anyway. And how does it work with ICE, Anna? I know we talked about ICE on-site visits. We talked about a whole bunch of issues with ICE. Interestingly, ICE is... As you uh, may be aware, a completely different agency from USCIS. So USCIS is the agency that 
grants the benefit. So when the student applies for the STEM extension, they apply to USCIS. But if an employer gets a site visit, that's going to be done from a different agency. We don't know exactly how they will coordinate their efforts and if there will be something that USCS will communicate to ICE and whether they will ask them to do a site visit in a particular case if they have a concern, maybe. We are not aware of any ICE visits so far, but the rule specifically uh, reserves the um, opportunity for ICE to conduct such uh, site visits and from what we understand, the site visit will probably be to the place where the employee is working, not necessarily the employer's headquarters. How exactly it's going to work, we don't exactly know because we, to our um, knowledge, ICE has not started doing uh, site visits. At least we haven't heard of any so far. But the rule says that Regular scheduled site visits will require a 48-hour notice. So if you get this notice, then you will probably have two days to prepare. And um, in some cases, I may, ICE may conduct uh, surprise site visits if there is something of concern to ICE or USCIS, presumably. And also, what employers should be aware of is request for evidence from USCIS, obviously, because USCIS is the agency that is making decisions on the STEM extensions. We have seen a lot of requests for evidence on STEM extensions. Uh, for the most part, they are standard. Uh, they use standard text. What they're asking is a copy of the I-983 and an employment verification letter that lists the job duties, uh, presumably to make sure that the job directly relates back to the degree on which the STEM extension is based. So this is something that we have seen quite a bit. And uh, when you respond with proper documentation, in most cases, you should expect your case to be approved unless there is a, a problem of some sort. Okay. I know we've done quite a few of these cases at the Murthy Law Firm where you've managed so far by the grace of God and being strategic and understanding the rules and reading it carefully and being as diligent as you are, I guess. Thank you, Sheila. <laughs> we we'll try tough. our best. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so now that we've gone over the compliance requirements, there are a whole bunch of reporting requirements that are required, uh, particularly with respect to the employee herself or himself, and so, but it applies both to the employer and the F1 student. There are four new reporting requirements. You have a six-month validation requirement, um, and the student must confirm to the DSO the biographical information, the residential information, and employment information every six months. And uh, really, this is not a new requirement, but it has not been consistently followed, and now the student will need to do it more often and regularly. But in addition to this, you have a self-evaluation. So, Anna, do you want to explain a little about the self-evaluation? Sure. This is a completely new requirement because it will have to involve Form I-983. It's done on this form. And what the rule says that um, the student must provide uh, progress of practical training and the uh, full evaluation of uh, his or her 
progress um, meeting the uh, training goals to the DSO on an annual basis using Form I-983. What does it mean? Annual basis means that 12 months after the start of the STEM extension and 24 months, which is the end of the STEM extension period. Well, apparently when the uh, new rule went into effect, it did not consider uh, a chance that a student would move or change employers. So SVP realized after the issued um, after the rule was issued that uh, this is a very common question. So what to do when a student moves to a new employer and it doesn't necessarily happen at the 12 month mark? So what SVP said is the student in that case must complete the new 983 and provide uh, self-evaluation based on each employment opportunity, which means at the end of each employment opportunity or within 10 days of each employment opportunity. In addition, the 12 months self-evaluation report and the uh, end of the STEM extension self-evaluation report uh, stay uh, in place. So it you may have the situation when somebody starts working for your company um, and it, it happens at some point uh, when they had been employed on the STEM extension for 11 months or 10 months, somewhere close to the end of the first year. So those people will have to provide self-evaluation at the end of their previous employment with the signature of their previous employer. And once they start working for you, then they will have to provide a new self-evaluation, which may come just a, a few weeks after their previous, uh, the end of their previous employment, which sounds a little complicated, but what the, um, to make it simpler, you need to remember that each employment opportunity needs its own self-evaluation uh, uh, within 10 days after the completion of that employment, plus 12 months at the, end, uh, at the end of the 12 months since the first day of the STEM extension and the end at the end of the entire 24 months STEM extension, those self-evaluations will also be required. Hmm. So this this is... Um, what about employers? Thank you so much, Anna. That's, so it's the 10 days, so it's within 10 days. Within 10 days after each employment opportunity, plus within 10 days after 12 months and within uh, 10 days after the 24 months period. That's a lot of reporting to happen. That's a lot of reporting What to about from the employers about termination? Well, in, uh, and we mentioned this previously, Sheila. Employers have to report terminations or resignations within five business days, which is actually uh, an improvement for employers because it used to be two, bis two days. So that's crazy. So if many of these IT consulting companies or other employers, if the HR person is on vacation that week or traveling uh, for a week or two weeks or whatever, God forbid, there's a big risk that somebody would drop the ball and miss this deadline. Um, and that's scary because now you'd be potentially technically in violation of the rule. I guess one way to deal with it is just pay the employee through a particular time uh, if that's possible, so that mm -hmm. it would be employee wouldn't be considered terminated or uh, resigned as effective as of that and, day. And that that is um, where your company-wide policy will help mm. you tremendously. So mm -hmm. it's important to have something in place with all of the ticklers and, and all of the uh, reminders that you can put in place. So if somebody is traveling, then it's not going to be... Um, 
overlooked mm-hmm. uh, when somebody else can do it. And and we definitely help companies with this particular um, issue, and we help them establish this corporate policy before you can actually uh, consider an individual training plan. So you would actually help them to update their employee handbook in a manner to include all of absolutely, this? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Well, wonderful. Okay, wonderful. So since we always like to be cognizant of time and it's close to 40 minutes and we like to wrap up in 45 minutes, we'll promise you we'll wrap up within the next five minutes. Uh, so let's quickly try to recap between Chris and Anna. We'll go over it really quickly. That empl- as employers, you are subject now, as you know, to a new set of requirements which the government has clearly indicated that they will monitor very closely between USCIS and ICE. And these include, let's go over it briefly, zip, 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 and then we'll try to wrap up with a conclusion. So, Chris? Firstly, Sheila, there's a uh, new requirement that the development of a training plan Mm -hmm. and maintaining the administration of that training plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Secondly, there's reporting of terminations to the DSO and also reporting of material changes in employment to the DSO. Mm-hmm. Which are done on Form I-983 also, right. as mm-hmm. which is important. Mm-hmm. Anna? And also, um, you need to conduct evaluations of the students, which also may be included in the reporting, and uh, make sure that the students' work hours, compensation, and work location comply with the requirements which is completely new requirement we didn't have before with regard to the 17 months rule. You need to be ready for site visits and have all the documentation ready for such visits so that you can actually provide all of the uh, information and documentation uh, to justify the training uh, plan that you developed for this particular employee. And then you need to attest to uh, complying and uh, adhering to the training plan during the entire 24 months period. Okay, so to just understand the evaluations of the students, the conducting of the evaluations by the employer, would that be in their normal course the way they do it maybe every six months and then if asked about it, they would have to share it or it's not not really asked for it anywhere on the training program? Well, the self-evaluation which the student completes together with the uh, employer or with the signature of the employer are done that Uh, what we uh, talked about uh, within the reporting requirements. Oh, so you're talking about the self-evaluations by the student, not an external evaluation by the employer Mm -hmm. of the employee's performance, like performance-based evaluations. Correct. Okay. So obviously this is an extremely hot topic that many of you as employers were very eager to understand and see what success Uh, we at the Murthy Law Firm have had, which is fairly substantial because from the day that the regulation was passed back in on November 10th of 2016, I'm sorry, May 10th, what did I say? November? I don't know why my brain, sorry, May 10th of 2016. I only said it like three times in this call, uh, during this conference call, uh, recording and live recording with for you all. Um, But it's really uh, a really hot topic. And we have been seeing um, as we said earlier, that d- designated school officials or international student advisors were very confused, especially in the beginning, and even some of them now, uh, basically giving students a hard time telling them they cannot approve the I-20 or issue the I-20 if it's an IT consulting company or a third-party work placement, if it's not at you know the proper client's work location, etc. cetera. Uh, but Murthy Law Firm, Anna and her team have really created and set up a fantastic system where they will help you with updating your 
employee handbook, the manual, work with you, set up the system, set up the forms, and work with you in creating a company-wide policy, and then for each employee as you're processing this case so that hopefully you can continue to be successful and grow as you hire very talented F1 OPT students to work for you and your company. Uh, we also take this opportunity on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Chris Drynan, our senior attorney, Anna Stepanova, our member and our resident expert on F1 issues, and all of us at the Murthy Law Firm. We want to wish you, your families, your loved ones, the very best wishes for the holiday season and the coming new year. Thank you for participating in today's conference call. We look forward to continuing to help you.